Welcome, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors. Reminder that today's show is brought to you by Pleasureland RV, best in the Midwest. Learn more at PleasurelandRV.com. I am Rob Dreesline, and this is WCCO Outdoors on AM830, News Talk 830. I am thrilled to be here on what an absolutely gorgeous weekend. How can anyone argue with the weather we had this weekend? I guess some people might say, oh, it's too cold to go swimming today or something. But uh, I I tell you, I went to three grad parties this weekend. This was a big grad party weekend, and I can't think of better weather today for a grad party uh, not too hot, light breeze, everybody was comfortable. The sun, you know, it's still hot if it's shining down on you, but uh, man, oh man, this is my kind of weather, and I hope uh, everybody found a way to enjoy it somehow. Uh, yesterday was the state track meet up at uh, St. Michael Albertville High School. I got up to that. I was, I'm was. i going to brag a little bit. My youngest son ran in the 4 by 8 relay for Eden Prairie. Uh, they did pretty well. They came in fourth, uh, and it was tight. Uh, the heat they were in, I was watching... What about the third leg of that? You know, of course, there's eight kids on the uh, on the the track at any one time. They were still in this tight pack at, at, by toward the end of the third leg. Finally, I think getting into the fourth leg is is one you know that everybody extended out. But the top four teams in that relay, the difference between them was three and a half seconds. I think that's pretty remarkable. You know, at a two mile race that the top four teams come in within three and a half seconds of each other. So congratulations. Was that a one? I believe it was Lakeville North second, Minnetonka in third, and then Eden Prairie in fourth. So congratulations to those lads. My son's a junior, so I'm hoping he gets another shot at uh, at perhaps a, a little. Maybe they'll win it uh, next year. We'll see. But uh, congrats to everybody who participated at any level at any event in the big state uh, track and field meet that's gone on the past several days. What do we got here? June 11th. Uh, a couple things. Uh, a couple guests we're going to talk to. Mark Strand was with us. Several months ago, we talked turkey hunting a little bit. Uh, Mark's going to join us here in a little while, and we're going to talk about the passing of his uncle, Roger Strand. Uh, Roger was kind of a really important figure in, in the state's waterfowl scene, specifically wood ducks. There was a group, uh, uh, that, that uh, the Wood Duck Society, involved in trying to put up wood duck boxes properly and help wood ducks uh, you know, rebound. They were, wood duck populations had dropped at one point. And a number of factors helped wood ducks come back, and, and wood duck houses contributed to that. And Roger was a, a, he was a physician. That was how he, you know, that was his day job. But then he was also a conservationist and, and a hunter and an advocate for, uh, for wetlands and wetland species like wood ducks. And, and uh, just a great guy. He wrote a number of stories for Outdoor News over the years. And uh, I got to know him, and I, I understand he passed away this uh, previous week, and we're going to talk to Mark about uh, about Roger a little bit and remember him. At 5.30, uh, we will have uh, a gentleman from Voyager's Wolf Project. Uh, we've talked about that a little bit before. If you haven't looked at the Voyager's Wolf Project's Facebook page, check that out. It's remarkable, some of the things that they've got going on with trail cameras, tracking all sorts of wild critters up in uh, Minnesota-Canadian border country. But they've uh, they've discovered wolves doing something really interesting that hasn't been documented real clearly before. And we're gonna, we've are gonna we got a guest who's going to join us, uh, Thomas Gable, and uh, he's going to spell out exactly what they found at 5.30, so stay tuned for that. I've got uh, a couple, there's a number of interesting news items going on. First, I, I will tip the hat to Dennis Anderson again. Uh, last week he had two great pieces, one on Asian carp uh, as well as one on the um, uh, forward-facing sonar that I'm following up on. 
I got out on the water yesterday on Lake Independence to get some pictures of forward-facing sonar in action. I'm going to have a story on that uh, in this coming week's print edition of Outdoor News, but not, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more next week. But then today, Dennis had a really good piece about uh, that Supreme Court ruling involving the Clean Water Act that I talked about a week ago. Uh, and Dennis pointing out that, yeah, our wetlands are sort of protected by the state wetlands law, but we've lost a lot of wetlands even when the Clean Water Act has been you know, fully in place. And he got into a little, little history of, of wetlands drainage here in Minnesota, going back to the, I didn't never heard of this before, the Swamplands Act of 1849. That's something like, what, 5 million acres of wetlands got drained between then and the early 20th century. You can read Dennis's piece if you want, but I, I tip my hat. I thought that was very well done. Uh, in the minute I have left here, a little, a little mini rant. I saw a, a good piece that... Uh, Jibed with a conversation I had with my family uh, the other night. My my nephew graduated high school, so we had a bunch of family in town. We were talking about all the stories you're seeing this spring from Yellowstone National Park of, I'll use the word, idiots doing really dumb things with the wild animals out there. Uh, we had the guy who tried to save the bison calf. We had some other guys that, that put an elk calf in their car. Uh, I've seen video of people trying to get selfies with with bison and 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 other animals. And there was a piece in USA Today by Jeff Zilgit. I, I don't I'm not familiar with him, but it was well done. Uh, just talking about you know people. What are you thinking? Uh, Yellowstone National Park is is a remarkable place. I mean, it's one of the only places in the lower forty eight where you can get a pretty good taste of what. The North American continent, especially the lower 48, looked like a pre-European settlement. I mean, you can see wild wolf packs chasing elk and bison. You can see the largest land carnivore, other than a polar bear, but, you know, grizzly bears uh, in the wild doing their thing, living in the wild. It's not a zoo. This This is the habitat where they live. And it's accessible to people around the world. You visit that park, you will see tour buses with people from around the world. That's that's how remarkable Yellowstone National Park is. And yet you've got people who think it's okay to you know, get selfies with the wild animals and you know, to touch them, to chase them. Uh, besides your own personal safety, uh, you know, it's a bad idea on multiple levels, right? I mean, you're, you're jeopardizing the health of the animal that, you know, the park folks may have to kill it like they did that bison calf that this, this person quote unquote saved. I, this Zilgit re- reporting in his piece that there is a, uh, a Facebook page called invasion of Yellowstone national park invasion of the idiots. It's a real Facebook group. I've never seen it, but I, I got to think it's, it's pretty humorous and you, you get some chuckles. I'm hoping I might even get out to Yellowstone this summer. I hope I do. I hope a lot of people listening, get out and enjoy this remarkable crown jewel of public lands that we have here. Uh, who's the guy? Ken Burns, the documentarian who called the national park system America's greatest idea. He's absolutely right. It is. Uh, but we got to take care of it on multiple levels, right? We don't want to overwhelm it with people. Uh, we also just need to remember something really simple. Don't pet the bears. I mean, what, what's complicated about that? I'm, I'm, I'm 53 years old. That's something that was very clear to me probably in about 1974, why is that not obvious to people? Uh, anyway, enjoy the parks, but but uh, let's let's uh, protect it uh, as best we can. With that, I'm going to break. Well, we're going to return with my friend Mark Strand. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors.
Welcome back, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors, 5.18 p.m. on this Sunday, June 11th. I am Rob Dreesline, Managing Editor, Publisher of Outdoor News, the host here every week. This show goes until 6 o'clock, then stay tuned for 60 minutes. And at 7 p.m., Gerilyn Steele will be here, talking hard, Steele talking, good stuff. So stick around, lots of good content coming at you. I want to jump in now with a friend of mine who joined us not that long ago to talk turkey hunting. Uh, maybe we'll mention that quickly, but uh, there's uh, another item I want to talk to my friend Mark Strand about. Mark, are you with me? Mark Strand, are you there, my friend? Hey, Rob. Yes, I am, and, and I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk about uh, my uncle, Roger. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, first off, my condolences. Uh, your uncle, Roger Strand, passed away, I believe it was this past Tuesday, June 5th. Do I have that date right? I, I believe so, yeah. He he apparently died peacefully in his sleep, which um, was good news to to all of us. And, and uh, none, of, none of us, by the way, really saw this coming this mm. soon. I had just literally seen him um, less than two weeks prior to that and okay. was out at, and hung out with him at his Stony Ridge farm, which a lot of people know was uh, he, he very generously – uh, donated the use of for a, a fundraiser known as the Prairie Pothole Day that started uh, with the Prairie Pothole Chapter of Minnesota Waterfowl Association and in recent years uh, became its own little nonprofit group and continued to. So I was out there with him and he was still schlepping around big heavy bags of, of uh, bird seed and, and feeding a pair of swans and a huh. huge number of wood ducks and mallards and, you know, all kinds of songbirds. And, and uh, as usual, he was showing me and teaching me everything he was doing every step of the way as hmm. he did it. And it just didn't look to me at all like I was going to receive the phone call I got from my cousin, Mac you know, just, just a few days ago saying, yeah. that, you know, really sorry to tell you this, but Roger passed away last night. So, yeah. Prairie Pothole Day, it's my understanding, is going to mark its 40th year this fall. Uh, and so Roger was an, he, first of all, he was, his day job, he was a phys- physician, right? He was a doctor, uh, but he yeah, had a really was, strong was, conservation uh, ethic. Yeah, he he served so many people. That there, there are so many people in that New London Spicer, Wilmer, you know, that, that whole West Central Minnesota area that know him primarily as a doctor and somebody who cared for them or and or other members of their family. But as you point out, um, he, he it might even have been his first love was uh, conservation in general. And I think you, you mentioned this right at the top of the show that wood ducks had a special uh, place in his heart, and he um, he, he helped and, and was a huge student uh, uh, of best practices for putting out wood duck boxes and creating predator guards and, and such so that wood ducks could more successfully bring off broods and then land their babies on the ground and lead them somewhere where they could feed and whatnot. And I, asked, I actually asked him when I was out there, so, you know, Raj, how many wood duck boxes do you have out here right now? He goes, I have no idea. Huh. So there's wow. been, you know, many hundreds, I'm sure, <laughs> everywhere. And he had just gone through uh, any number of them, and he listed for me, you know, how many um, 
you know, which boxes had which ducks in them and how many eggs were in there and whether the hen was laying yet or not. And, you know, so his mind, even though he had some some memory issues at the end there, his mind was just uh, sharp. And, I mean, he, he, he was a teacher right to the end. And, and as you say, just he loved conservation and poured so much of his heart into that. And, and I want to mention to uh, some people who might not know that directly across Highway 71 from his Stony Ridge farm there uh, is Sibley State Park. And they had a really nice environmental learning center there. And Roger donated just hours without end to going there and teaching groups of, of young students and whatnot, about, not just about wood ducks, but about you know, all sorts of natural history topics. A couple of points I'd like to make. One, Roger, every, every year, every spring, Outdoor News prints its Wood Duck Challenge, which is a set of plans on how to build a right. wood duck box and put it out and try to help the wood, duck, wood ducks. And part of that included the, quote-unquote, best practices for installing a, a predator guard because there's a lot of people, I think, who build, and, and I, I want to take an opportunity here to kind of have a, a learning moment, a teaching moment. There's a lot of people who put wood duck boxes out, and they go and nail it on a tree, and they think, oh, I did something great. Well, if you don't properly put that thing up, you're actually right. creating a death trap for ducks because predators, whether it's uh, cats, uh, raccoons, whatever else, can get in there and kill the kill the hen duck. And so Roger was one of the advocates for this best practices method where you put up uh, a predator guard or whatever else, you put it up in a proper spot so that that hen, wood duck, or merganser, or whatever it might be, is able to pull right. off her right. brood and there's some responsibility that goes with putting up a wood duck box and rot. You know, I'm, I'm obnoxious. I'm aggressive about that. Roger was able to sell that in his very <laughs> calm demeanor that I appreciated right. so much. Yeah. And that calm demeanor, you know, that that's something that um, I've gone in a few times now and looked at the, the obituary for him online that my cousin Catherine sent to us. And, uh, there's a lot of really nice notes in there from people who knew him. And most of the notes come from those who he treated as a doctor. But, you know, for, for anybody who never did run across Roger Strand, he was he was really a, actually a blend of all the best attributes that you would hope to find in a, in a fellow human being. And I mean that because other than my dad, I think he was the most influential man in my life and someone that I uh, aspired to be like and, and still do because he was one of those guys, as you point out, he, he was very level-headed and calm and he was kind and intelligent and so skillful at anything that he did and studious and, you know, talented as a, as a surgeon and as a, as a conservationist. And, you know, he was agreeable with people, but not to the point that he wouldn't carefully insert what he thought was uh, another point that might be able to be made, you know, and, and I mean, he was just helpful and cheerful. He's just, he's somebody that all of us can, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that, that, that we have to spend time looking back on his legacy now but um honestly uh, and i want to point out in case uh, a lot of people probably don't know that tori mccormick is going to write mm -hmm. a story for you in this week's print edition of the minnesota outdoor news as well and even for those who don't subscribe to the outdoor news i, I would really 
uh, urge you to, to go pick up a copy of it and get started reading the publication and spend a little bit of time learning about Roger because he 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 was, he was um, somebody that um, it, to say that we're going to miss him just doesn't even come close. In addition to his help with the Wood Duck Challenge, he wrote dozens of articles for me over the years. You know, some of the nuances for putting up wood duck houses and and just talking about wood ducks and wood duck habitat strategies. And also, you know, we're we're getting low on time, Mark. But why? Why? What was it about wood ducks? Why wood ducks? Did Roger glom onto that? Why not canvasbacks or uh, or mallards or whatever else? If I was going to guess, and that's a super question I never asked him while he was here. My guess is that he and all of us in our family spent so much time out at that place that my grandpa Strand bought many, many years ago. We called it Stony Lake, and then Roger bought Stony Ridge Farm, which adjoins to it. And in that habitat, it's woods, it's wetlands, it's, you know, open uh open water in Sony Lake and kind of signature habitat for the wood duck. And mm-hmm. they're, and they're so glorious and they're so, you know, uh, something to prize. And it was, uh, I think that had as much to do with it as anything. And, and he would bend your ear about mallards and, and stuff like that too. But like you say, it was wood ducks. And when I was there, I sat and watched out on the farm pond through my binoculars at his Sony Ridge farm there and the number of adult Drake wood ducks that were swimming around uh, <laughs> after the hens were on the box was just, you couldn't count them. And, 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 and that's literally what he did. And then Catherine sent my brother Matt and I initially, and then a bunch of other people, a video that she shot the morning after he had passed away under the bird feeders in his yard were dozens of wood ducks. It was as if they had gathered under the bird feeders. Like, <laughs> wow. uh, oh, man, <laughs> amazing. it was, yeah, it was touching. It was, uh, it's hard for me to watch it. Really. I bet. Well, he was inducted into the Minnesota Waterfall Hall of Fame, uh, the third ever class for that organization in 2012, right. and, and definitely right. very well deserved. Mark, I, I'm unfortunately out of time here, but my condolences to your extended family. My condolences to the you know the whole conservation community that knew Mark as well as you know maybe everybody that uh, that Roger knew through his uh, his medical practice also. Uh, what what a great man and and a great life. Uh, you know, a great run and it's right. It's, it's always sad when we lose someone, but uh, what an incredible life. I, I don't think uh, anybody can look back on Roger's life and say it wasn't a, a life well lived. Well spent and and well said. And again, I appreciate the chance to come on and talk about him, and and thank you for helping a lot of people, even more people, learn about Roger. Yeah, like I said, we're going to have a nice story about him in next week's uh, print edition of Outdoor News, which will be be available at outdoornews.com, too. Uh, so lots of, lots of ways for people to read that. Mark, have a great week. Uh, we'll, we'll check in with you maybe later this summer and uh, maybe talk some fall turkeys or something. That sounds great, Rob. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Right, take care, my friend. Mark Strand, a longtime contributor to the outdoor community, outdoor writing fraternity here in Minnesota. Great guy. And our condolences to him and his extended family for the passing of his uncle, Roger Strand, a great conservationist here in Minnesota. We are going to break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about wolves up on the border. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors.
Welcome back, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors. I am Rob Dreesline, Managing Editor-Publisher of Outdoor News, and we are here until the top of the hour. I want to jump in now with an interesting topic and a guest who I don't think has ever joined me on the broadcast before, Thomas Gable. He is from the Voyager's Wolf Project. And I tell you what, anybody connected to the outdoors, anybody with any interest in the outdoors who spends much time on social media probably is following the Voyager's Wolf Project, at least on Facebook, because these guys post some really cool video from northern Minnesota uh, with wolves, all sorts of critters. Like I say, Thomas joins us now. Thomas, tell us a little bit about the Voyager's Wolf Project. Thanks for jumping in, by the way. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So the Voyager's Wolf Project um, is focused on understanding the ecology of wolves uh, in and around Voyager's National Park in northern Minnesota, an area that we call the Greater Voyager's Ecosystem. One of our main focuses of our work is to really understand what wolves do during the summertime. And summer, we mean April until like October, basically when there's not ice on the lakes. And so we're trying to understand wolves' predation behavior during that time, and then also how wolves raise their pups at that time period as well. And so that's really the big focus because that's a time period when biologists really haven't studied or had struggled to study wolves because wolves are so challenging to follow and track in northern Minnesota without modern Mm -hmm. technology. Well, we got some modern technology out there, don't we? You folks use a lot of trail cameras. There's a lot of hunters who use trail cameras, and, and it's this is it the same kind of technology. It's uh, the, the quality of video you guys get is incredible. Yeah, so we're using commercially available trail cameras. We get <laughs> okay. asked a lot, you know, what cameras uh-huh. do we use? Um, <laughs> we use Browning, Spec Ops, mm-hmm. Model Line cameras. They take superb footage. Um, you know, the quality is amazing. And and that's one of the, the best cameras, I would say, that we've found. I mean, we haven't tried them all, and there's a ton of them now. But that's one that we use. We like it. It's got a great trigger. So if anyone's listening and wants a good trail camera, I'd highly recommend that. And we've used a lot of other technology. I mean, GPS collars have been really critical. I've seen some maps you folks have created of the different wolf packs up there based presumably on the GPS collars, where those wolves are traveling. And it's remarkable how... (laughs) how stringent the borders are between these different packs. They look like little mini nations. Yeah, and sometimes that that's oftentimes how it looks. Ironically, this year we've collared some wolves and, and it actually doesn't look like that at all. Um, really? We're going to probably share something on social media. What's happened is this year we had a lot of pack turnover. So packs oh. that had been there in previous years kind of disappeared or things happened. We're not entirely sure. And so there's a lot of territory that's sort of up for grabs. And so we see wolves doing all sorts of crazy things right now. Uh, So this year looks a little different, but historically, you know, wolves are very territorial. They're in their territory and they don't Mm -hmm. stray from that very often. Gotcha. The video footage you guys get, you get a lot of creatures besides uh, timber wolves, gray wolves, don't you? I I see a lot of great black bear footage, uh, fishers, all sorts of uh, interesting Northwoods creatures. Yeah, we got really fascinating stuff. I mean, this, you know, past fall, we got a cougar. That was quite interesting. You know, we've got right. yeah, we lynx, that, yeah. you know, we see lynx, moose, pretty much any animal that lives in the North Woods, you know, we eventually get on camera, you know, ones that are rare, like lynx, you know, we don't get as often. But generally speaking, uh, we've got uh, over 200 cameras deployed in our area. So, you know, if there's an animal that's making the North Woods home here, you know, sooner or later, we figure it out, it seems. That cougar moved on? From what we know, we haven't seen another video of it, so uh-huh, uh-huh, who yeah. knows? I mean, I saw there was news of, you know, a cougar, and uh, someone got a really nice daytime trail cam shot of a cougar in Michigan recently, and, uh, you know, you just can't help but wonder. We'll never know, right? You know, is that the same cougar that's right. just wandered through? Total conjecture, but those are the sort of things you start wondering. Exactly. 
You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Rob Dreesline is with you. Uh, we're chatting with Thomas Gable from the Voyager's Wolf Project about some of the video they're capturing in northern Minnesota up in border country of gray wolves, black bears, all sorts of creatures. Now I'd like to kind of get into the meat and potatoes of why we've got Thomas with us this week. You have uh, released, what what would you say, it's a white paper? It was a peer-reviewed paper, basically describing the fact that we got wolves up there eating a unique food source that maybe a lot of us wouldn't necessarily expect. I'll I'll let you tell the tale. So, yeah, so we recently published a scientific paper. Uh, The lead author was Danny Friend, who's a graduate student at the University of Minnesota. And what the paper was really focused on was summarizing a bunch of different pieces of information we had about wolves catching fish. Um, So we first learned uh, of a couple of wolves hunting and catching fish back in the spring of 2017. And we thought that was pretty novel uh, at that time because that really hadn't been documented before in places like Minnesota. People knew in, in coastal areas of Alaska or British Columbia that wolves would catch fish there when salmon are spawning. But that's kind of categorically different than wolves hunting suckers in little creeks in Minnesota. So no one really knew about that. So in 2017, we thought, wow, that's really cool. And at that time, we thought there must just be a couple of smart wolves that figured this out. And it's probably just this really brief behavior unique to these individuals. But as time went on, we started to realize that this behavior wasn't just specific to a couple individuals, but that many wolves in many different packs went after fish in the springtime, when especially suckers is what they're really going after. So that got us interested in trying to then write sort of a comprehensive paper that described basically what we had observed from trail cameras, from GPS collar data. We had a wolf with a camera collar on it. So there's actually a GoPro mounted in the collar that captured a wolf hunting and catching fish. So really the paper was our attempt to summarize basically everything we have learned so far. Uh, And that includes when wolves are catching fish, how they're doing it, you know, what factors influence where they catch fish, all sorts of good details like that. And the video is really cool. And I presume that's posted on your Facebook page, Yes, yeah, you can watch the video on our Facebook or other social media. It's on YouTube as well. And that really provides some really great behavioral information because you can actually watch the wolves, not only catching the fish, but you can watch how they do it. And that was really informative for understanding, particularly how do they catch suckers at night. Um, And we had people ask us on social media, how can they catch these fish at night when it's totally dark? And that was one of the interesting insights from the paper was that when you watch that footage, you can actually see what the wolves are queuing in on is actually the sound of the fish breaking the surface. And then that's what they go after them for. So you see them just sitting, they just sit there in ambush waiting and waiting and waiting. And then they hear fish ripple and they go go splashing into the creek. Yeah. So that was, that was pretty interesting to see. It's remarkable footage, and it's all suckers, any other species. Uh, we've got a lot of deer hunters that are constantly mad about wolves eating deer. Are we going to anger the walleye anglers or the muskie oh, anglers? Yeah. Are, are there any wolves eating sport fish, Thomas? Assure yeah. me that it's just rough fish. <laughs> wolves love eating trophy walleye. That's what they <laughs> No, no, I'm just kidding. Um, So it it really seems to be suckers almost exclusively because suckers are running up in these shallow little creeks and they're doing it in the springtime. We've not seen wolves really eating any other fish, primarily other than suckers. I mean, it's possible if there's something else in that creek at that time that they would maybe grab it. But, you know, these aren't the spots you're going to find walleyes and pike and different things like that. 
and suckers are, you know, they're kind of an oily, fatty fish. I got to think that's a really good high calorie food source for, for wolves during a time of year when there's not a lot of other food available, right? Totally. Yeah. So the, when fish come available in this May period starts being when it's sort of the, the beginning of sort of the lean time of the summer for wolves. And so suckers can be, you know, at least a couple pounds. Like you said, they can be oily. They're spawning. So they obviously have uh, a lot of nutrients in them. And also, if you've ever seen suckers running, they can be quite abundant in certain areas. So if you're a wolf and you can figure out, oh, this is a good spot to wait. And you just have to sit there and the fish just kind of come up the creek and sort of like a conveyor belt, right? And you just pick them off as they come. That's a pretty good food source. Um, and it has very little risk associated with it too. You know, hunting a deer, you could get kicked in the face or a beaver could bite you, but sucker's not going to do anything to you. Sure. We know that wolves are generalists, right? They're omnivores mm-hmm. that eat all sorts of different foods, right? They'll they'll eat berries, I presume, part of the year. Mm-hmm. They Obviously, they like big game, and that needs to sure. be their primary source. But they find a lot of different ways to supplement their diet and, and survive. That's why they're survivors, I guess. A hundred percent. And I think that's the biggest takeaway of any of this work on predation, particularly when they start eating, let's say, what seems like unique food sources. You know, it's clear that wolves are have adapted to just take advantage of food sources that are only available for short periods of time. And once they make that connection that, oh, there's food here, they're very good at continuing to go to that food source until it's not available. Any response uh, from the scientific community on this yet? Or you do have other people around the world saying, yeah, we're seeing some of this behavior too now. Has, has there been any scientific response yet, Tom? So I, I understand it's fairly early. Sure. Um, we've not heard anything yet. I think, you know, our, our biggest statement or conclusion probably out of the paper is that this behavior of wolves catching fish is likely widespread in similar ecosystems to our area up in Voyagers. And similar ecosystems would be sort of these southern boreal ecosystems that you'd find in Michigan, Wisconsin, Ontario, Quebec, you know, Manitoba, places like that. And, you know, I think it doesn't most biologists, I don't think, are that surprised to, to learn that wolves would do something like this, because like we said, they're super adaptable. So they're very good at figuring this kind of stuff out. I think mm-hmm. as more research is done to study the summer behavior of wolves in a variety of areas, that this probably will become more apparent. There's actually a study that came out from Labrador, I think it was this past winter, where they were looking at wolf scats, and they found that fish made up like 20% of the diets mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. wolves during the periods they were studying. So I think there there is evidence the problem is with like let's say scats when you find scats full of fish scales you don't know if wolves are killing them or just scavenging them sure whereas with our study we're able to confirm with the video footage and things like that that they're actually actively killing them i don't we've not heard anything critical it'll be very interesting to see if people who do work similar to ours in the future find this kind of behavior and my prediction would be that they would well, it's fascinating stuff. Thanks for all you're doing up there, Thomas. If folks want more information on the Voyager's Wolf Project, where can they go? They can go to our website, which is voyagerswolfproject.org, or look us up on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Um, just type in Voyager's Wolf Project and you'll find us. You folks have accelerated the knowledge that humans have on wolves uh, absolutely light years just in the past decade, Thomas. It's it's really been transformational and a lot of fun to watch, too. I, I tell you, anybody out there who has any passing interest in wildlife, my daughter and I watch your videos all the time. We really enjoy viewing it. So thanks again for all you're doing, Thomas. 
Sure, absolutely. My pleasure. Yeah, you got a great team up there. That was Thomas Gable from the Voyager's Wolf Project. Just uh, go to Facebook, Voyager's Wolf Project, and you can uh, see the results of this study, uh, as well as a lot of the other videos they're posting. Thomas, have a great week ahead. Thanks. You too, Rob. Appreciate it. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Let's get in a break. More of the broadcast after these messages. Final segment of this week's broadcast of WCCO Outdoors. Rob Dreesline is with you. Had a good time here this week, as usual. We'll be back with you in seven days. Uh, got a couple minutes left. If anybody would like to give us a call, 651-461-9226. If you've got an outdoors topic on your mind, give us a quick call. We'll see if we can squeeze you in. A uh, couple news items I wanted to mention. Before I do that, though, I want to swing back to my original topic at the start of the show. I talked a little bit about Yellowstone National Park and people you know, interacting with the animals in the way they shouldn't. You know, I, I don't want to – you know, sometimes accidents happen, right? Sometimes you're out hiking, you come around uh, you know, some bushes or something like that, and there's an animal there that you don't expect, and you get surprised, and something can happen. Now, you know, when you're hiking, you should be loud so you can avoid that. You don't surprise each other, but things do happen. And I actually had an incident happen to me once at Yellowstone I thought was interesting. I was, we were staying at some small cabins at the uh, what they call the canyons uh, par- portion of the park, and I was out there with my boys, my mom and my dad. And I went out to our, our minivan. I still own the minivan. It's parked out on the street as we speak here. Uh, and uh, and I uh, I went out, and I uh, it was early in the morning. I had to get something that, that I left in the van overnight. And I open the door, and I'm shuffling around, grabbing some things at the side door. And I stand up, and I look, and there at the front of the van is a massive bison. Now, it it couldn't. It had to be less than 10 feet away. It was huge. It was right there. I don't know what he was doing. He was just wandering around, and he was curious. He was watching me, uh, and I, you know, I immediately gasped. Uh, it, you know, it's like, wow, that that critter's pretty light on his feet that he just, you know, walked right up to me like that. Uh, I quietly closed the door and backed away around to the back of the van and kind of waited till he walked around to the other side, past some other cars, and then I, I went back in the cabin. So I understand weird things can happen uh, whenever you're out of doors, and I, and I don't begrudge that against somebody. Uh, it's just uh, people that are going out of their way to interact with wild animals in ways they shouldn't that uh, gets gets my dander up. Uh, so that, I'll move on from that topic. A couple interesting news items broke this week. One, uh, this is a story that I guess got wrapped up last year, the DNR issuing a press release, Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, uh, on a shovel-nose sturgeon poaching case down in southeastern Minnesota. I guess these would be Mississippi River fish. They busted, uh, these guys were eventually charged in Houston County District Court, extreme southeastern Minnesota. All six of these folks from out of state, five of them, four of the five from, uh, I think, the Milwaukee area, Milwaukee, Mequon, Wisconsin, uh, and then the uh, last guy was from McKinney, Texas. They were taking shovel-nosed sturgeon, which is kind of odd, kind of like, what? Uh, And if you know anything about sturgeon, you know that historically there's been kind of a black market in Caviar, uh, the, the best caviar comes from sturgeon, and that was related to the demise of the lake sturgeon in Minnesota. Lake sturgeon grow very large. They were harvested for their for their roe, for their caviar. Uh, you do that too long with any animal, right? You you harvest their re, their mode of reproduction, and before you know it, they're gone. And that's what happened. And it's been a long process to restore lake sturgeon populations and, and 
some of Minnesota's waters. And it's been a big success success story. You look at uh, the Rainy River, we've got growing populations of sturgeon now in the uh, Red River watershed, uh, the St. Croix. But shovelnose are a little, they're, they're a smaller sturgeon. When I was a kid growing up on the river, once in a great while, you'd see a dead one or you'd, uh, you'd catch one, rarely. You'd catch one, you know, you're working, trying to catch catfish. Uh, and they were smaller. And I, and I really can't imagine going and poaching sturgeon for their roe. But perhaps that's what was going on. We, we, we printed in this week's paper, too. But these guys, they got a lot of, you know, they got a bunch of gross misdemeanor charges, I, I believe, here. Uh, some pretty massive fines. So I'm glad, you know, anytime there's a poaching incident like this, that the, you know, the DNR follows through and, and uh, pursues them to the extent of the law and then uh, prints their names. Uh, we printed them in Outdoor News. You can, you can check that out if you want uh, the complete details. Uh, by the way, I see the DNR also looking for volunteers for its loon survey in July. Maybe we'll talk about that some more next week, hoping to get a DNR guest on to talk about that seven days from now. Well, you hear the music. That means I am uh, running out of time. 60 Minutes will be up next uh, at the top of the hour, and then Gerilyn Steele will be uh, on WCCO Radio at 7 p.m. I hope everybody is enjoying what's left of this gorgeous weekend. I want everybody listening to have a great week out of doors. My name is Rob Dreesan, and I'm signing off for another week of WCCO Outdoors.